Welcome to the end of innocence, the JFK assassination. I'm your host, John Young. Last week, we looked at the investigation of the Texas School Book Depository by the Dallas police only moments after the assassination. Dallas Deputy Sheriff Eugene Boone, Luke Mooney, Roger Craig, and Dallas Constable Seymour Weissman went from floor to floor searching the building after the assassination. A little after 1 p.m., Deputy Sheriff Luke Mooney, while searching the sixth floor of the depository, discovered the stomper's nest in the southeast corner of the floor. There were three spent shells lying on the floor. Shortly after that, Deputy Sheriff Eugene Boone and Deputy Constable Seymour Weissman found a bolt-action rifle with a telescopic sight between two rows of boxes in the northwest corner near the staircase. All four police officers present at the time the rifle was discovered unanimously identified it as a German 7.65 Mauser. The officers had no doubt about their identification, and affidavits were drawn up by Boone and Weissman, who described the weapon in detail. There was one problem with the German Mauser, though. It couldn't be tied back to Oswald. So later that day, the identification of the rifle changed to a Latin-made Mamaco Carcano rifle, which happened to be a rifle that Lee Oswald owned. If you missed last week's episode, go back and listen. It's rather eye-opening. While a sniper's nest and a rifle was being discovered in the Texas School Book Depository, President Kennedy was fighting for his life across town at Parkland Hospital. This week, we're going to pick up the trail of President Kennedy's limo as it sped to Parkland Hospital. We're going to look at what happened when the President's limo arrived at Parkland and how the world changed inside Trauma Room 1. Before we pick up the President's trail as he heads to Parkland Hospital, I wanted to play portions of a 1988 interview with Texas Governor John Conley and Texas Senator Ralph Yarborough. The interviews were done for a British television documentary, The Men Who Killed Kennedy, in 1988. To date, it still remains as one of the best documentaries about the JFK assassination. First, we will hear from Texas Governor John Conley as he describes what it was like being in a car with President Kennedy in the motorcade. From the dark, uh, overcast, the drizzling rain of Fort Worth to the bright sunshine when we landed uh, at Love Field in Dallas, uh, it promised to be uh, an absolutely spectacular day for the president, uh, for the vice president, for me, I was governor of the state. Uh, Ms. Connolly and I rode in the car uh, with President and Mrs. Kennedy. He got a very, very warm reception. Schools, it turned out, the school children uh, were lining the street. Uh, by the thousands. They were applauding, and it was a very happy, uh, joyful occasion, really. Nellie turned to the president and said, now, Mr. President, you can't say now that they don't love you here in Dallas. And uh, within a matter of a few seconds after that, we turned uh, on Elm Street to go down to get on the uh, Stimmons Freeway to go out to the uh, a trade mart uh, where the luncheon was being held. And that's when uh, uh, the shots occurred. Um, I heard uh, what I thought was a rifle shot. Uh, I immediately reacted by turning to look over my right shoulder because that's where the sound came from. I didn't see anything out of the ordinary and was in the process of turning to look over my left shoulder when I felt a blow in the middle of my back. 
as if someone had hit me with a doubled up fist about like that. The blow was of, uh, of such force that it bent me over and I immediately saw that I was uh, covered with blood and I knew I'd been hit. And I said, oh my God, they're gonna kill us all. And I heard uh, another shot that uh, was a loud shot almost like that. And immediately I saw blood and brain tissue all over the back of the limousine. I knew then that uh, the president had been fatally hit because Ms. Kennedy then, I heard her say, my God, I've got his brains in my hand. Seconds after the president was hit in the head, Secret Service agent Clint Hill had jumped onto the rear of the limousine and was covering Mrs. Kennedy and the wounded president. The limousine driver, William Greer, reacted and sped up the car. Agent Roy Kellerman, in the front seat with Greer, radioed to the lead car, which sent an urgent message to nearby Parkland Hospital. In a press car toward the back of the motorcade, reporter Merriman Smith relayed the first news of the assassination. Texas Senator Ralph Yarborough describes the scene here. The Secret Service in the car in front of us kind of casually looked around, looked up at the back of them, and rather slow to react. It went under the underpass, and as we came up on the other side, I could see then the president's car, and there was Hill, whom I knew as a Secret Service man assigned to protect Mrs. Kennedy. He was lying across the back to hang on with arm over in there so he could hang on at that high speed. His face turned back towards us, just rather than ang agony, and beating with his hand on there like uh, a terrible thing has happened. I knew then that Kennedy had been shot. Sam Holland, who we discussed a few episodes ago, watched the assassination from the Stemmons Freeway overpass. He said in his testimony that he heard four shots fired. Holland stated that he thought the third shot come from the stockade fence on the grassy knoll, which was to the right front of the president's car. Holland's story perfectly matched the confirmed shots on the Dallas Police Department's dicta belt recording of the gunshots. He also told federal investigators that he saw a Secret Service agent standing up in the follow-up car behind the president's car. Holland asserted that the agent was holding a machine gun. The investigators thought this statement was absurd and made light of Holland's entire testimony. Some years later, a photograph emerged that shows Special Agent George W. Hickey in the rear seat of the presidential follow-up car. He picked up and cocked an automatic rifle as he heard the last shot. At this point, the cars were speeding through the triple underpass and had left the scene of the shooting, but Hickley kept the automatic weapon ready as the car raced to the hospital. This photo would later be a key piece of evidence in the House Assassinations Committee investigation, proving that eyewitness Sam Holland's testimony about the number and source of gunshots and that he saw a man with a machine gun in a follow-up car was not exaggerated. Here's Texas Senator Ralph Yarbrough as he described what he saw when he got to Parkland Hospital. We came to Parkland Hospital and the Secret Service immediately jumped out the minute Johnson's asset practically pulled him out and formed a cordon around him, four or five, and one of them said, Mr. President, I knew then Kennedy was dead. And I walked up to the car where Mrs. Kennedy was still there on the back seat, lying there with her head bowed over, covering her husband's head, his blood running down her leg and by on her clothes, and twice saying, they've murdered my husband. They've murdered my husband. It's the most tragic sight of my life. The president's car reached Parkland Hospital at approximately 12.35 p.m. At first, Mrs. Kennedy would not release her husband. Governor Connolly, who had regained consciousness upon the arrival at the hospital, tried to stand and get out of the car but collapsed. 
Finally, with difficulty, Agents Kellerman, Greer, and Lawson lifted the President onto a stretcher. Admiral George Berkeley, the President's physician, arrived three to five minutes later, as he had mistakenly gone on to the trademark where the President was to give a speech later that day. Secret Service Agent Clint Hill removed his suit coat and placed it over the President's gory head wound to prevent the news photographers from taking photographs of it. However, several persons saw Kennedy's body, including Fort Worth newsman Roy Stamps. Stamps told researchers, quote, I rushed up and saw Kennedy lying in the car on his side. His foot was hanging over the side of the car. The back of his head was gone, end quote. While the president's car was still at the Parkland emergency entrance, Secret Service men started to wash it out, destroying valuable evidence. This was a blatant violation of the standard law enforcement procedures. At Lyndon Johnson's request, the car was later removed, stripped, and totally rebuilt. As they carried the president inside the hospital, Mrs. Kenny followed them into Trauma Room 1. This is where the history of our country would change forever. Mrs. Kennedy was still holding on to a piece of the president's head she'd retrieved from the rear of the limo. There, President Kennedy was attended to by no less than 12 of Parkland doctors, including four surgeons, the chief neurologist, an oral surgeon, and a heart specialist. Dr. Malcolm Perry took over the president's treatment after Dr. Charles Caracco had attempted to improve Kennedy's breathing by putting him on a respirator. Perry performed a tracheotomy, while the rest of the medical team tried to stabilize the president's vital signs and stop the massive bleeding. A traumatized Jackie Kennedy did her best to help. She handed Dr. Marion Jenkins all the brain and skull matter she had managed to salvage from the limousine seat and floor, while her husband's head rested in her lap. When noting the absence of any neurological, muscular, or heart response, the doctors concluded that attempts to save the president was hopeless. Dr. Robert McClellan and Dr. Paul Peters described the president's condition as he arrived in Trauma Room 1. My most vivid impression of the entire agitated scene was that his head had been almost destroyed. Uh, the face was intact but very swollen, and it was obvious that he had had a massive wound to his head. We decided uh, that uh, the president was dead, and uh, Dr. Clark, the chairman of neurosurgery, had come in in the meantime, and he had walked up to the head of the patient and looked inside at the wound and shook his head. We made valiant uh, and unceasing efforts to resuscitate this man who was mortally wounded. And I think had we taken the opposite attack and said, oh, this man is dead, that even today people would be questioning and telling us stories about mortally wounded people who had been resuscitated when all hope was lost. So instead of taking that approach, we took the approach, let's save this man if we can, and we made what would be commendable, I think, even by today's standards, efforts to resuscitate him. Outside Parkland Hospital, grief overcame the waiting crowd as the president's death was confirmed. The first to break the news was Senator Ralph Yarbrough, I knew he was dead. I'd been around enough violence in my life to know he was a dead man. And the press came up and they asked me uh, what had happened. So I said, there's been a deed of horror. An exocabular has sunk beneath the waves. I thought that would tell them, in effect, what had happened without my saying he was dead. 
Father Oscar Huber administered the last rites, and John Kennedy was pronounced dead at approximately 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. After President Kennedy was pronounced dead, White House Press Secretary Malcolm Kilduff was responsible to break the news from Kennedy's trauma room to Vice President Lyndon Johnson waiting in another room in the hospital. Kilduff simply walked up to Johnson and addressed him as Mr. President. Lady Bird Johnson then let out a short scream as she knew what this comment meant. Kilduff then asked for Johnson's approval to announce Kennedy's death to the public. Johnson ordered that the announcement of the president's death be made only after he left the hospital. Johnson told him, quote, I think I'd better get out of here before you announce it. We don't know whether this is a worldwide conspiracy, whether they are after me as well as they were after President Kennedy, or whether they are after Speaker John McCormick or Senator Carl Hayden. We just don't know, end quote. Lady Bird Johnson would later write in her diary about this day. She says, quote, Suddenly I found myself face to face with Jackie in a small hallway at Parkland Hospital. You always think of someone like her as being insulated and protected. She was quite alone. I don't think I ever saw someone so much alone in my life. I went up to her, put my arms around her, and I said something to her. I'm sure it was something like, God help us all, because my feelings for her were too tumultuous to put into words." End quote. After Kilduff received confirmation that Johnson was back at Air Force One, Kilduff announced President Kennedy's death to the press assembled in a nurse's classroom at Parkland Hospital at 1.33 p.m. Central Standard Time. Here's his announcement. President John F. Kennedy died at approximately 1 o'clock Central Standard Time today here in Dallas. He died of a gunshot wound in the brain. Dr. Burke told me it's a, it's a simple matter of, uh, of a bullet right through the head. Kilduff would then go on to say, quote, Dr. Berkeley told me it is a simple matter of a bullet right through the head, end quote. Asked, can you say where the bullet entered his head? He replies, quote, it is my understanding that it entered in the temple, the right temple, end quote. And Kilduff actually points to the right front part of his head showing reporters where he was told the bullet entered President Kennedy. That sure doesn't match what the Warren Commission wants us to believe. No way a shot behind him from the Texas School Book Depository could have entered the right front part of President Kennedy's head. Malcolm Kilduff then followed Johnson back to Air Force One. While Johnson took the oath of office of the President of the United States, Kilduff made the only audio recording of the event by holding up a dictabelt dictaphone which had been on the President's desk the only audio recording device Kilduff could locate aboard the plane. Walter Cronkite would then have the unfortunate task to report President Kennedy's death to the American public. From Dallas, Texas, the flash apparently official President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. Parkland Hospital orderly Darrell Tomlinson found a bullet on the floor near a stretcher in the hallway outside trauma room one. The bullet, which had a pointed nose, was turned over to the Secret Service. However, the bullet later used as evidence in the Warren Commission investigation was not the same bullet that Tomlinson found. The bullet placed in evidence had a rounded nose. 
When called later to testify before the Warren Commission, Darrell Tomlinson was asked to identify the bullet. He said it looked completely different from the original bullet he had found on the stretcher outside Trauma Room 1. Adding to the suspicion is the presence of Jack Ruby at Parkland Hospital while Kennedy's body was still there. Though it has been proven that Jack Ruby was present at Parkland when the president was brought in, it is not known whether Ruby planted this bullet. Veteran newsman Seth Cantor told the Warren Commission that he encountered Jack Ruby at Parkland Hospital about the time Kennedy's death was publicly announced at 1.30 p.m. Cantor said he and Ruby even shared a brief conversation. Cantor recognized Ruby, having worked in Dallas for some time. He said he spoke to Ruby about 1.30 p.m. and recalled that Ruby asked him if he should close his club out of respect for the slain president. When asked about his presence at Parkland, Ruby denied ever being there, and the Warren Commission chose to believe him. The Commission concluded that Cantor must have been mistaken. Ignored by the Commission were FBI interviews with the Dallas woman William Tice, whose experiences on the day of the assassination fully supported Cantor's account of this Parkland meeting with Ruby. In an interview I did with her in November of 1997, Mrs. Tice told me that she would state her life on the fact that Jack Ruby was at Parkland Hospital when the president was there. She did not speak with him, but clearly saw him. The account of Ruby at Parkland has been further supported in recent years by a former radio newsman. Roy Stamp said he had met Ruby on about 45 occasions prior to November 22, 1963. Stamps told researchers that he was in the hall of Parkland holding up a telephone line to his radio station when he noticed Ruby enter the hospital. He said Ruby was carrying some equipment and trailing behind a TV crew. In 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassinations reversed the Warren Commission's decision that Cantor was mistaken about his Parkland meeting with Ruby, stating, quote, While the Warren Commission concluded that Cantor was mistaken, the committee determined he probably was not, end quote. With the presence of Jack Ruby in Parkland Hospital, the possibility that CE-399, the magic bullet, was planted appears even more likely. Of course, virtually anyone could have planted a bullet, since the stretcher in question lay unattended in the public hallway for some time. But even if the bullet was not planted, and there is some evidence to suggest that the bullet may have worked its way out of Kennedy's back wound, there is also the possibility that CE-399 was substituted for the bullet found on the stretcher. Neither of the men who initially handled the bullet could identify it later. Of course, if bullets were switched, it could have only been done while in the hands of federal authorities. Serious researchers believe that Jack Ruby had several duties over the few days back in November of 63 in Dallas. The most ominous task was to kill Oswald, but the planting of the magic bullet certainly could have been one of his assigned tasks. Why was Ruby at Parkland? How in the world did he get into the hospital right outside the room where the president was being treated? Was there not any security there? At approximately 1 p.m., a man called Vernon B. O'Neill of O'Neill's Funeral Home and asked for the best casket that O'Neill had available. The man on the phone, simultaneously calm and tense, needed the coffin quickly and O'Neill had a slight problem. Of the 18 people who worked at O'Neill's Funeral Home, 17 of them were out to lunch. After all, it was a beautiful Friday for November in Texas. O'Neill picked out a solid bronze coffin with white satin linen tagged at a sales price of $3,995 from his storeroom and waited for three more of his employees to return from lunch. The casket weighed over 400 pounds when it was empty, and O'Neill certainly couldn't lift it into his Cadillac hearse by himself. Once he had it loaded, he rushed to Parkland Memorial Hospital on the most important delivery of his career. The casket was for President of the United States John Fitzgerald Kennedy. 
When the casket arrived at Parkland Hospital, O'Neill was met by agents from the Secret Service and some of President Kennedy's aides. They helped O'Neill push the coffin into the hospital and down a corridor towards trauma room one, where the president had been officially pronounced dead just minutes earlier. One of the president's aides and the doctor, who had just worked on Kennedy, tried to distract the president's grieving wife so that she wasn't anguished further by the side of the coffin that her now-dead husband was about to be placed in. Jacqueline Kennedy refused to turn away and begged to be let into trauma room one to see her husband one more time. The doctor didn't want her to see anything else, but Jackie insisted, telling the doctor, quote, how can I see anything worse than I've already seen, and pointing out that, quote, his blood is all over me, end quote. The doctor let her in trauma room one as O'Neill wheeled the casket inside, and she placed her wedding ring on JFK's finger before retreating back to the outer hallway once again. Vernon O'Neill was horrified when he saw the condition of the president's body. Blood was everywhere and a gaping wound exposed brain matter which was seeping out of John F. Kennedy's head. Not wanting to damage the beautiful and expensive casket that he had picked out for the president, O'Neill and several emergency room nurses went to work. The bottom of the inside of the coffin was lined with a plastic mattress covering the president's body. The nurses went even further and spent 20 minutes carefully wrapping President Kennedy's head in numerous white bed sheets so that blood didn't seep through and stain the lining of the casket. After Kennedy's body was placed in the coffin, preparations were made to leave Parkland Hospital and take the president back to Air Force One at Dallas's Love Field so that they could transport him back to Washington, D.C. As the Secret Service and the president's aides wheeled his casket towards the exit, they were stopped by Dr. Earl Rose, the medical examiner for Dallas County, Texas. Believe it or not, in 1963, it was not a federal crime to kill the president of the United States. Because of this, there was no federal jurisdiction for John F. Kennedy's murder, only local. Despite the scale of the crime to the nation, it was technically just another murder in Dallas, Texas on November 22, 1963. Because of the laws at the time, and on a purely legal basis, the murder of Dallas Police Officer J.D. Tippett about 45 minutes after Kennedy's shooting was a far more serious crime than the President's assassination. Because of this, Dr. Rose informed the man escorting the President's body that they needed to leave it in Dallas. Rose noted that he needed to autopsy the body before they took it anywhere. To Dr. Rose, a homicide victim was a homicide victim. He had a job to do. The Secret Service was outraged, and President Kennedy's loyal aides were even angrier. In the corridor of Parkland Hospital, things got tense. Rose found himself in a shouting match with the Secret Service and some of Kennedy's aides. Even the doctors at Parkland sided with the Secret Service and pleaded with Rose so that they could take the president back to Washington. A Justice of the Peace arrived with the power to overrule the medical examiner, but he didn't. The Justice of the Peace said that Kennedy would have to be autopsied in Dallas and ensured the Secret Service that it wouldn't take any more than three hours. Again, tempers flared, and the men in the hallway at Parkland were close to fisticuffs as the medical examiner, Dr. Rose, literally blocked the casket's path with his body in order to keep it inside the hospital. When the president's close aide, Kenny O'Donnell, appealed to the medical examiner and the Justice of the Peace for compassion for Jackie Kennedy and an exception for this case so that they could return the dead president to Washington and get Jackie out of Texas as quickly as possible, the Justice of the Peace, Theron Ward, refused. He says, quote, it's just another homicide as far as I'm concerned, end quote. O'Donnell lost his temper and told Ward to go F himself. We're leaving, get the hell out of the way. With that, the Secret Service, with guns drawn, pushed forward. 
The medical examiner, the Justice of the Peace, and several Dallas policemen were forcibly shoved out of the way by Secret Service agents. Jackie Kennedy was close by, her hand softly guiding the president's bronze casket as it was removed from the hospital and placed in the hearse which raced en route to Love Field in Air Force One. So, then the body was illegally moved to Washington for the autopsy. Because when a coup d'etat has occurred, there's a big difference between an autopsy that is performed by civilian doctors and one that is performed by military doctors under orders. The departure of Air Force One from Love Field that Friday afternoon was not so much a takeoff as it was a getaway with the newly sworn-in president. On duty at Parkland Hospital throughout the struggle for the president's body was Aubrey Reich, an ambulance driver for O'Neill Funeral Home. Here's an interview he did back in 1988. They told us to go into the trauma room and prepare the president to be moved. Yeah. Had his head wrapped in in sheets. Uh, I was, you know, at the time, didn't know where he had been shot or or what, you know. And we was all very sad, you know. Everybody's choking back tears. But, you know, that's but uh, Dr. Earl Rose was a forensic pathologist, well-trained in medical legal autopsies, and he appeared at a trauma one and said, this is a homicide in Dallas County, and I will do the autopsy on President Kennedy. In the meantime, a casket had been acquired, and the president's body had been placed in it, and he was informed by the Secret Service that if he didn't get out of the way, he would be run over by the casket as they were leaving. This was the president of the United States, and they were taking him back to Washington. There was a lot of uh, cursing going on. I, I was embarrassed, from, especially for Miss Kennedy, because she was standing right behind us. The priest was there. Uh, a lot of what I thought was, you know, was too foul of a language to be going on. You know, it was a terrifying type thing. I mean, it's hard to believe, you know, that grown people to be so childish about things and everyone trying to take over. Vice President Johnson had already left for the airport, shortly to be followed by Jackie Kennedy with her husband's body. The casket was manhandled up the steps of Air Force One. Minutes later, Johnson was sworn in as the new president. Barely three hours after arriving in Dallas, the plane left for Washington. When the entourage arrived at Air Force One, they found a plane completely encircled by heavily armed Secret Service agents. The plane's powerful engines were running, ready to lift off at any moment and push Dallas and everything that had happened behind them as quickly as possible. Fearing the unknown and suspecting a possible conspiracy to decapitate the entire government, the shades were drawn down over the windows throughout the aircraft in order to protect it against any possible further attacks. The Secret Service and the President's aides struggled with the extraordinary heavy casket as they maneuvered it up the steps of Air Force One and into a holding area in the back of the plane, cleared out by removing two rows of seats. On the plane, of course, Lee Harvey Oswald's guilt was announced by the White House Situation Room to all passengers before any kind of investigation had started, the angry lone nut solution beginning to take shape. Jackie remained with President Kennedy's casket from almost the entire time she boarded Air Force One until it landed at Andrews Air Force Base near Washington. The only exception was prior to the plane taking off from Dallas when she stood, still wearing her blood-stained pink dress, on one side of Lyndon Johnson as he took the oath of office as the new president. 
his hand resting on JFK's book of Catholic missiles, which had been found in JFK's private cabin by aides rummaging for a Bible for the oath-taking ceremony. In a very strange occurrence, Lady Bird Johnson stands there smiling as Lyndon Johnson is sworn in as the 36th President of the United States aboard Air Force One. He was sworn in by Federal Judge Sarity Hughes, a family friend, making him the first president sworn in by a woman. Johnson did not swear on the Bible, as there was none on Air Force One. Jackie Kennedy stood there in her pink suit stained by the president's blood. Aboard Air Force One at the swearing-in ceremony, a bizarre photo was taken by Kennedy's White House photographer. This famous scene depicts inside Air Force One at Love Field in Dallas for the swearing-in of President Johnson shortly after President Kennedy's assassination. As conspiracy theories abound on the JFK assassination, perhaps the most outstanding and prevalent is its concept of a coup, the then Vice President, the Secret Service, and numerous other politicians of the period. One of the cornerstone pieces of evidence in this theory is this. Cecil Stoughton's photo famously called the Wink, which was taken aboard Air Force One while President Johnson was being sworn in just after formal announcement of JFK's death. With grief-stricken Jackie Kennedy standing to Johnson's left and Lady Bird to his right, this image, taken only seconds after being sworn in, shows President Johnson looking back over his shoulder to his longtime friend, Texas Congressman Albert Thomas, and receives a conspiratorial wink and a smirk. Considering the circumstances, this is most troubling behavior on part of the elected officials of the U.S. government. Whether it signifies a role in the president's murder is another matter, open to interpretation and hopefully investigation. The White House photographer Cecil Stoughton that took this photo has stated he feels as if the photograph is, quote, sinister. This event is just one of many strange things that was happening in Dallas on this day, and Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with them. The majority of the president's cabinet were en route by airplane to Japan when the assassination took place. When news of the killing was radioed in, officials discovered that the codebook that would help them access a secured radio channel to decipher the message was missing. Cabinet members, who were astounded that this crucial handbook was gone, which is an unprecedented violation of all federal protocols, did not know what information to believe, so they turned around and flew back to Washington. On the plane back to Washington, word was radioed from the Situations Room to Lyndon Johnson that one person and one person alone did the shooting. This was done before the manhunt or an arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald had even taken place. A third of the U.S. Combat Division was returning from Germany in the air above the United States at the time of the shooting. Less than two minutes after the assassination, the telephone lines in Washington, D.C. were discovered to be out of service. The official explanation for this later stated that because too many people were trying to use their telephones to relay news of the shooting, the telephone system went down and stayed down for an hour. Since it has been documented that the breakdown occurred almost at the moment of the shooting, it is unlikely that masses of people would have been trying to call the Capitol at that time. Sounds like coincidences to you? Not for one moment. The cabinet was out of the country to get their perceptions out of the way. Troops were in the air for possible riot control. The telephones didn't work to keep the wrong story from spreading if anything went wrong with the plan. Nothing was left to chance. He could not be allowed to escape alive.
Next time on the end of Innocence, the JFK assassination, we pick back up on Lee Harvey Oswald's trail. He has now arrived at his rooming house. It is shortly after 1 p.m. The president has died at Parkland Hospital, and Lee Harvey Oswald is a wanted man. Does he even realize it at this point? We'll see you next week.